Hello humans, welcome to The Frontline, a leadership and business podcast brought to you by Peregrine Corporate Services, an Isle of Man based fiduciary provider. My name is Martin Hall and thanks for listening. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, today I'm joined by Nick from CSS Group. Nick, thanks for joining me. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. Appreciate your time because we know everyone's busy at the moment. Uh, with most guests, we, we just start out just to get a little, little bit of background on yourself. So where did you grow up? Schools, so up, schooling, etc. Yeah, so I grew up in the States. I was born in Boston originally. Um, grew up early years there in just outside New York City on Long Island. When I was about six or seven, I moved to Atlanta. So I did my primary, secondary school in, in Georgia. Uh, so elementary school, middle school for, for those of us that, that use the U.S. terms. And then I uh, moved to Kentucky uh, for high school. So I was there for, for four years in high school. And then after that, I went to the University of Kentucky for four years after that for, for my, uh, my bachelor's degree. And was that family that, that, or work commitments that move your family around? Because they're quite different places, I guess. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. So my dad back then was uh, the director of sales for a large software company that worked in the automotive industry, actually. So back then, before we had all these software aggregates and CRMs and uh, huge inventory software systems that, that large manufacturing companies use, there was a, there was a need for automotive buyers, automotive dealers, and automotive manufacturers to have a, a large high-value inventory software solution, basically. So they sold that. They were the only one in the market. So they were quite a huge, a quite a big company. They were listed at U.S. Stock Exchange. And as the sales director for the for the for the East Coast, he'd move us to different offices every three or four years. So I think I moved every three years until I got to high school. So about until I was about fourteen or fifteen years old. So we moved within Massachusetts, within New York State. And then I think we moved twice or maybe even three times in Georgia in different areas of, of the Atlanta metropolitan region. Yeah, they certainly a young age. That's, you know, they, they, they move big moves on because you get, you know, as, as a kid, you're growing up with uh, friends and next thing you're swept and have to start that, you know, friend building process again, new school, the new person. Absolutely. I mean, it, unfortunately, we didn't move inside any of the school zones. So we always run a new school zone. So the the benefit, I guess, long term was that I've got friends in lots of different places. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you're a kid and you have to change schools every three years, it's not the best thing. It's not it's not your favorite thing to do, I don't think. Yeah. So you mentioned that uh, back there you went back to, or you went on to what we call it uni uh, to study. What did you study there? So at university, I studied finance. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess my my degree is in business management, business administration, but I majored in finance at, at the university. And um, early on, I thought I was going to go into some sort of finance career, perhaps in, you know, Wall Street or, or something like that. Just mm-hmm. so happens that my degree coincided with the, uh, with the crash in 2008 and 2009. So it wasn't great timing to go into any sort of financial career with, uh, with large companies like their Stearns going out of business and the rest of them getting brought up by the major banks. Yeah. So I, uh, I worked for Wells Fargo for a little while. I worked there for about a year and a half. And I worked in, in investment banking and I worked in some commercial lending. Um, but it was quite apparent to me that that wasn't going to last very long. So, uh, so I didn't stay there very long. And, and you know, after I left, ended up, that part of the, uh, the bank ended up being consumed into the retail side, which 
no one wants to really work in a bank as a teller if they have a, if they went to school to be an investment banker. It's not exactly the same discipline. Yeah. yeah. So that that wasn't something that I could see myself doing. And and before we maybe start talk about your early career or early career after that, it's just that when we talk to guests around who we talk about the age of 15, 16 and kind of deciding on a career, which I always think still, you know, thinks a young age to go, oh, I want to do this for the rest of my life. But you've obviously gone into finance to to study finance at, at degree level. Was there, was that obviously it was appealing to you or was that just, that's what felt natural? Well, I think I always wanted to be in business of some sort. So at, at our business school, I think you could get five or six different majors. So you had your general business administration, you had finance, you had accounting, you had economics, you had marketing, and there was probably some business operations degree as well that you could major in. So I think when I was in there and, and looking back on it now, I did not want to be an accountant. Accounting didn't make sense to me in, in my brain as far as the way left, left brain, left side and right side tables line up and journal entries and why am I doing all this, this work on the piece of paper just to get an end result. So although you have to take accounting all the way up to the 300 level, so that's your, your third year in university and you have to pass those pretty, pretty difficult classes, I didn't want to pursue that all the way to completion. So I, I switched to science, which seemed much more uh, creative. Uh, so what we did in school, what you learned to do in school was to trade financial derivatives. So you could take two different financial products, you could derive them down to a base level and you could create new financial instruments. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's how market crashed is because they created mortgage securities out of people's mortgages. But that's what you learned to do at university to, uh, to, to create a finance you know, whether it was uh, institutionalized or on the exchange. And it seemed interesting to me, and I could use some, some creative aspect of, of my brain rather than just following numbers from, you know, concept to, uh, to disbursement. Yeah, no, and I can relate to you in regard, and I certainly know no accountant knows numbers things don't make sense to me either. <laughs> so yeah. just, I suppose, before we come on to now and the firms you, or the firm and the group you're within now, just looking through your, we talked about it, talked about it earlier off off air around the, the jobs on on the LinkedIn profile. I think we could probably talk for hours about the different jobs. So I picked a couple out just as headlines to hope to then just to dig in a little bit about management and communication within those jobs. So the first one was a budget officer within the U.S. European Command. So kind of what what was that role uh, generally, and and how did that? You know? So yeah, so a little bit of background. So after I left Wells Fargo, um, I took the advice of my dad a couple of my uncles to get into government work because it was a bit more stable, a bit more secure, obviously. Very difficult to lose your job in the government unless you've committed fraud or crime. So that's good. You're not going to get laid off. Okay. You've, got some, yeah, you've got some security around that. So uh, I think I was 23 or 24 years old when I applied for a, a government position. And I thought I was going to go work in D.C., which is where the majority of these jobs are, the Pentagon or... State Department or something like that. And so I was prepared to move. I was living in Miami at the time, working for Wells Fargo. I was prepared to move, although not really wanting to, to move to D.C. for Miami, bit of a different uh, lifestyle. So when I got the job offer through to go work for the government, it said Germany on it. So I was like, Germany? Uh, I didn't, why am I going to, why would I want to go to Germany? This is what I thought initially, obviously. And I thought through for some time. So, so basically the whole, the whole package was you go off to Stuttgart, Germany, you, the government would pay for your move, pay for your expenses while you're there, pay for your living situation. I was 22 or 23 at the time. Obviously you pay you a salary. You get to do all of these 
great things. So, um, so yeah, I packed up my stuff and I moved to Germany about six months later. So I think that was uh, February of 09, give or take. And I left Miami, it's, you know, 30 degrees still in Miami when I left Celsius. And I got to Germany, it's about zero. And it's, uh, you know, it's a foot of snow on the ground. And not very good at the time. Not, not very good. At, I did not study. I studied the Spanish and Italian at university and at high school before that. Did not study German. Luckily, as we worked on the U.S. military base, all you know, all Americans working there, which was great, but didn't help you once you left the base to go home for the day and to go buy, to go buy things. Obviously, to go to the food shop, to deal with your landlord, and all these other things. So you had to quite you had to learn the uh, the language at least to a respectable or maybe even basic level pretty quickly. So. At first, I was like, man, this is a mistake. I could be at the beach this week instead I'm here in the freezing snow. <laughs> I'm dealing with, uh, you know, a completely brand new life now. Um, I didn't bring any friends with me, wasn't married at the time, not any of those things. So, um, so I stayed there for a few years initially. Uh, did, a, did a whole bunch of cool things, including I, I worked with, uh, with, with NATO for a while in the Partnership for Peace program, which is... The, the countries that aren't yet signed up formally to NATO, we do military exercises with them, we do military aid, we do civil response, we do all kinds of things as a U.S. military to help them get up to whatever the NATO standard is, which is a very long document of about you know, 600 pages. So I can't really go into full detail, and you can imagine there's things you have to do to demonstrate your military is able to interoperate with the, the U.S. military and the rest of our partners in, in NATO. So, so we would go out to places like Ukraine and, and Moldova and areas in, in Eastern Europe to, to do military exercises with these, these new partners that wanted to join into NATO. So this, this is when I was quite young, uh, again, 23, 24, going to all these interesting places that I probably couldn't even uh, spell a few years ago. Um, maybe kind of knew where they were if I threw a dart in the map, but didn't really have any understanding of the mm. language. So, yeah, good. I was just gonna, I was going to say, wait, maybe not going into specifics, but when you talk about military exercise, what is that? What kind of just general kind of thing is that? Just to again, right. know so, some context to what that means. Yeah. So, so for instance, um, let's say we were going into to Ukraine. So what we would do there is that we would have a, a military naval exercise with the Ukrainians and with several partners that would also bring their the naval ships in. So basically, what you would do is you would exercise, practice, percept that there is a, an attack or there's some type of uh, terrorist attack or, or military attack from a third party. I mean, you can imagine what countries they're, they're trying to protect against in Ukraine. Um, or you could do a Crimean exercise of an invasion from a, from a rebel force. So you build up a scenario, you build up the, the storylines around the scenario. Uh, you would then get everyone together, get them on the ropes, get them into the positions, and then you'd run a two, three, five, or seven-day scenario around what that looked like, play it out in real time, introduce specific concepts and storylines and events that are going to happen based on military theory or from, from operations that happened in the past or from exercises that happened in the past. And then you'd see how the, how the militaries would you know, communicate, interoperate, defend, attack, uh, take on fire, things like that. And then you would, at the end of it, you would, obviously have an entire outbrief and lessons learned and that would help you potentially do something similar in the future at a better scale. Yeah. And imagine things like in, in those scenarios, you're then in a, in a I guess a room full of people and, and communicating that you're sort of ultimately surrounded by a lot of leaders and picking up immense amount of information, uh, yep. 
information on, on, on different skills around leadership. Absolutely. I mean, what you have, generally you have an operations room. And inside the operations room, you have seven, eight, or ten major functions that go from logistics to operations to communications to the, the gambit of, of what the military puts into its eight or nine silos that they, that they have out there. So each of those silos, let's say each of those major functional areas, is headed by, you know, a colonel, lieutenant colonel, perhaps a major, 20 years of military experience, leading and in, in, in fighting in different parts of uh, the world and different types of organizations. So you have very interesting uh, spread of military leadership styles, as well as uh, a very close up uh, understanding of what it looks like when leadership turns into under fire leadership, not just, you know, in the classroom or, or something like that. Yeah. So that's where I guess where there's, yeah, these external stress factors that they try and put in the situation to see make or break, I guess, as part of that process. Absolutely. I mean, and, and while they are in charge of their, their functional areas and design areas, they're also being graded. I mean, so there's a independent audit function that happens inside of that operations center for the betterment of the group, then takes into account how things are, are being uh, achieved, what's being achieved, what's not being achieved, what's, what's failed in the course of the test, and then how we can get better in the future. So the, you know, it's hard to tell a 20 year, uh, Army colonel, what he should or shouldn't do. He, he knows it. He knows it intrinsically. He's, he's trained his whole life to do a specific set of uh, tasks underneath a, an operation. However, there are there are feedback methods that you can you can give them in case that there's a, a style that may be uh, able to to be could be done better. Really. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that, again, that that you're also learning about a feedback process. Again, people, in, I suppose, in senior or management roles where they've got to you know you, you tell staff off or you need to staff need dealing different and need constructive feedback and not criticism and I guess they're again all traits that you learn as part of that of, of the one yeah. different person I mean, if nothing else you may learn that, that certain people are better in certain situations and how to move the pieces around the puzzle a bit more move the chess pieces around to get the best out of everyone I think that's that's more to the point of rather than a passive fail grade it's really how can we best utilize that talent or that that style and that situation at that time that's needed and was was you you know a fairly young age and you talk about old older generals etc. Were you were you intimidated by that environment initially when you went into it, or was that something you thrived in? Yeah, at first I was just like I have no idea what's going on. There's all this stuff happening. Uh, there's all kinds of screens on, and uh, I'm not quite sure what all this means. It's not it's not like a uh, it's not like a movie. I mean, it's colors and numbers and and, and moving pieces that don't actually have uh, a clear description of what they are. So certainly, yeah, at first it was quite intimidating and, and really just the learning curve is quite steep. So it, it, yeah. it takes you time being in those situations to, to learn all of that. And then finally, you, you can get an understanding of what all that means. Because there's, no, there's not really any courses that tell you about this. I, mean, I went to uh, military operations school. I went to uh, some, some, I guess, basic theory around how you can achieve and, and move along operations. But the details and the specific nomenclature that you utilize when it actually happens is nothing but what you learned in, in how, right. and how to school. Yeah, okay. And that, and that, to go back to the question that I said, that was the, the, when we talked about different jobs previously, that was the US European command. Right. Yeah, so, so eventually I went down that track and I, I got into what I guess I started with was finance. So I ended up getting into finance and military at some point. I went, I went through, training, practice, exercise, operations, which wasn't really finance related. It was more 
partnerships and program management and operations and logistics. And logistics was a big part of my background up to that point. And then when I got into the budget part of it, it was the finance piece. So, that, so now we're talking about looking at $150, $200 million budgets that are, that are appropriated to the, to the commands utilized for a whole number of things. So when you're the, when you're the budget officer or you're the, the, the budget office at one of these major commands, so these, so these commands, just for the background, are four-star commands. So within the U.S. military, we've got levels of commands, one-star, two-star, three-star, four-star, that designates the general that's in charge of these uh, actual commands or, or admiral if there's a if there's Navy element to it. So four-star command is the highest command that you can, that you can serve at. There is eight unified commands across the globe that, that control certain elements of uh, regional basis. The European Command is in charge of defense and operations throughout all of Europe and Israel and a bit into the Levant. So anything that happens in that space that the U.S. military should be involved in, might be involved in, or, or is involved in, happens and flows up to that command at the very top level. So you've got the tactical level. This, shit, this stuff's happening right now, <laughs> operational yeah. level. Okay, this stuff will happen sooner or in the future. Let's build an operational plan around it. And you've got the strategic level, which is the four-star level, which says, okay, we need to look at this from a from almost a CEO perspective. How are we going to manage this enterprise? And everything that happens in the lower levels all the way up to us needs to be thought through, planned for, created, created around and up from an operational basis, and then given strategic guidance from the top down. So. Yeah. That's a long way of saying that everything that happened comes up the comes up the chimneys to the top where we were sitting at the time. So all the money that controls all that stuff that below that pyramid top basically is sitting up there at the top at, at European Command and, and for similar uh, commands around the globe. So you've got the, the big budget there. Let's say our control of the big budgets that sit in your subsequent commands down the chain basically. So if you take the whole thing, it's probably billions. But if you just look at the very top, it's in the hundreds of millions. And so there you decide, where are we going to spend this money? What are we going to spend it on? What's worthwhile? What's not worthwhile? And a lot of very important decisions are made around, hey, should we invest in country X, Y, or Z? Should we move our troops to here or there to do specific exercises? Or big things like, should we build a anti-rocket uh capability in Israel, which is called the Iron Dome, which we built while I was there. So things like that that are very, very much present in the news and, and maybe perhaps in some of our lives happen at that very top level. Yeah, okay. So I suppose, and again, I guess applying that to just, you know, small, a small to medium-sized firm, that same philosophy of, you know, the budget at the top, the board deciding where strategically building the business to obviously reach its goals and goals and then filtering down that, that budget, whatever that might be down through, through the business. Yeah. I think, the, I, I think, yeah, I think the principles and lessons are the same. It, it doesn't matter. It does matter if it's uh, a kinetic uh, present physical threat, obviously if, if rockets are coming in, you want to stop them. Okay. What does it cost to do that? That's the, that's the much more black and white. And unfortunately the, the less of the humanitarian approach, you know, how, how we build that and, and what is the cost to do it. But from a, from a business perspective, you've got to make those decisions every single day. You, from a strategic level, if you're a director of your business, you need to think about not only what to spend your money on now, how far your budgets will go now, but what does it look like down the road in three to five years, and what's the forecast that you might be bringing in, and what parts of the, the industry that you currently operate in are, are the parallel industries or parallel markets you want to get into, and how does that affect your overall position? I mean, it, you can swap out 
places and, and armies for programs and projects yeah. if you want. Yeah, okay. And one of the other jobs I, I picked up from the, like I said, I could spend hours chatting about it, but was working with the U.S. Department of Defense, a special program. Whereabouts was that and what was entailed there? So after I finished my European tour of about six years, uh, came back to the States, ended up working in Tampa, Florida at McDill Air Force, Air Force Base. And that's where we've got two, again, the reason I told you about those four-star commands is because I'm going to go into it a bit more. So in Tampa, Florida, you've got a military base sitting in the middle of Tampa Bay on the end of a peninsula called McDill. There's a relatively large air base there for, for air wing refueling, but there's also two major commands that sit on that base as well. One central command, so that's a four-star command that controls all the operations in the Middle East. So from Tampa, theoretically, we fight the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, right. wow. which, is, which is a long way away from the actual fight, obviously. So the, the ability to use satellite communications and technology are paramount in, 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 in the military world these days because there is a operations center, obviously, that sits out there downrange, a couple of them. There's also a large one that sits in Tampa, Florida, that controls what happens out there to a certain extent, with obviously the idea of time, tyranny, distance, time, and space being applied that you can make your own decisions downrange at the tactical level. But again, from here, from, from the four-star command level, we're going to make strategic decisions around what we want to do out in that military fight, whether it's in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, or the new fights that have emerged in the last couple of years in Syria and in other places. So mm-hmm. they're doing all that and working very similar hours with people working downrange, trying to stay on time with them to, to make sure they can make decisions effectively. So that's just on one part of the base. Other part of the base is where we have another four-star command called U.S. Special Operations Command, SOCOM for short. Uh, that command, we are, again, a four-star level, four-star general, Marine, or, or Navy SEAL uh, would control that type of base. We're controlling the, the training, distribution of talent, and operations of all the special operations forces around the world, globally. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, I think there's, there's some, the, the special operations force can be counted in the, the, the high 100s or low thousands, let's say. That's paras, that's your boat people, that's your air guys, all together. So probably, let's just call it in the, in the low thousands, let's say that. In the US military, we're talking about tens of thousands of special operators. So all the way, anything from a ranger all the way up to uh, you know, a SEAL basically. And then you got the four forces around that. You've got the special operators in the Marines, special operators in the Navy, special operators in the Army, and special operators in the Air Force and their own elements that sit around that. So this is, so this command is jointly set up. So you've got all the elements of the military sitting together, whether you have a green jacket on, a blue jacket on, whatever it is, you're sitting together and you're making decisions around those four major elements and that large amount of tens of thousands of operators that, that achieve things on behalf of the U.S. military. So, Saying all that, inside that larger apparatus and that larger idea of around training and things like that, there's special programs, special programs that more sensitive and classified. But what we do in there, what we're trying to do in there basically is create effects on the, on the battlefield across the world. So we're running programs that our guys are going to do that are creating positive effects around the world through whatever means that we have uh, and our partners means in those spaces. So huge logistics program, huge budget around it, huge amount of moving parts to get our 25 or 30 guys halfway around the world, huge amounts of finance, huge amounts of of money moving, all kinds of things that come together into this large program that has congressional oversight. So twice a year, we have to go up to Congress and say, hey, we're spending X, Y, and Z in this program. Please 
don't take it away from us. We need more, yeah. you know, and, and justify all of our operations underneath that and, and what we're doing in each of those operations. So the program manages something like 21 operations in 16 different countries in the world. So all of that is sat under an umbrella and a special oversight committee that has access to all the material. The, the, I mean, it kind of blows my mind. The amount, I mean, communication across that and then down that chain must be, uh, must be a massive challenge. And I, I go back to, it kind of reminds me of one of the guys I listen to quite a bit who is a guy called Jacko Willick, who's uh, a former Navy SEAL and does a lot of leadership stuff now. And he talked about when he was in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, he, uh, he had to, uh, they had to train the locals. Mm-hmm. When they were first told to do that from from command, they were like, they're, they're basically useless and going to put us and our, our, our team at risk because we're going to have to take them out to fight with us. But the strategic, yep. strategic approach of the hierarchy, let's say, back in the States was, we're never going to leave this country unless you train the locals to look after themselves. So you're going to have to put yourself at risk. But that, <clears throat> that message needs to be clear from the very top down of the rationale for those decisions because you're ultimately putting men on the ground at risk but they need to understand if you don't take that risk now, you're going to be here forever. So you need to take that risk. And, and that communication must be, uh, must be certainly difficult at a time, especially being millions of miles away or many miles yeah. away. Uh, I mean, one of the things you have, cultural differences can't really be uh, overstated in this sense. So if you talk about training militaries in Iraq and Afghanistan, but predominantly Iraq and other countries where it is not quite as common for high-grade military officers to do physical labor or physical activity or physical exercise. And all of our guys have to exercise every single day for, you know, from 6 a.m. When the, when the horn blows till, till first breakfast. So that entire cultural difference took quite a while. I mean, there's some interesting YouTube clips out there of us training the, the Iraqi military and some of the Iraqi surrogates. And they're just doing jumping jacks, and they're not able to do jumping jacks. Right. But if you can't do jumping jacks, how are you going to move fire and position under, you know, in battle? That's, so we need to start basics. And there's always a lot of questions around advanced military tactics where they should be taught to, to downrange partners. And depending on what partners they were, we need to, you know, we need to figure out how they can actually communicate and, and move around as a unit first before we can start teaching them advanced tactics around room clearing. Mm-hmm. So, again, there, so kind of enforcing what you're saying there, the communications gap could be, hey, in, in D.C., we're saying these guys need to know advanced military tactics so they can be our, our special operations surrogate and they can move fire capture or perhaps do other things to targets that we give them. Okay, that's fine. They need to figure out how to walk from, you know, A to B. <laughs> and keep right down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. So, again, I'm sure we could dig in a lot more, but maybe looking at present day, you're within the CSS group, so maybe a bit of background on what, what they do, your role within that. Absolutely. So CSS as a group has a, has a couple of different brands inside of it. We started, so as a group, we kind of started as, as four directors. We all were working for professional service firms in the past. I was a strategy consultant. One of the directors was a defense consultant. One of the directors was a professional consultant inside of a, a large uh, aggregator. And then we had another professional consultant join us. We all had kind of worked for professional service at a pretty high level, uh, had, had a good client base. However, we were working for somebody else. Uh, and, and it was, wasn't as fulfilling, I suppose, from a, from a certainly a psychological level. So we all knew each other very well, had a long history together, worked together in, in numerous places. 
set up right away, had a number of our clients sign on with us right away. And that was, that was in the UK to start with and in, in, in Europe. And, and that was primarily focused on corporate security inside businesses, inside their apparatus, inside their infrastructure. And then we, we focused on financial services, professional service firms, law firms, accountants. And in that sense, we had a, we had a large charity client that's a, a military charity in the UK. And then we've got a whole number of other kind of clients that kind of fit inside there. But those are kind of the major silos that we, that we work in. And our methodology and what we were looking at was, hey, we, need to, we should go into businesses. We should figure out what their real struggles are and what their real questions are and, and what can we do to help them and not add in all of kind of what we saw as a problem in the market which was technical jargon and very, very unclear pricing structures and, and very difficult to understand unless you are a IT person by, by nature or you have an IT background. Some of the things that we're trying, that these companies were trying to do to help you. And, and this is, this is coming from the States and from the UK and from Europe and getting a kind of a flavor of all these things. Grove is a work in big companies in, in all three of those places. And, and obviously the defense department being the biggest company in the world, uh, we have a huge base of suppliers that, that feed into that, um, to that major structure. So that's where we got our start. That was about two and a half years ago that we that we decided to focus on, you know, getting the UK. I think one of the things that we saw was we, we worked out in the US, I'm meeting American, obviously, but a few of us have worked out in the US for major companies, saw the technology that was coming out of Silicon Valley for information security, saw it being utilized in, in, in companies in the US, really, really large companies in, in the tens of billions in, in turnover. Okay, so what are they doing in the UK? Let's look at the top market in the UK and see if they're utilizing any of the same suppliers or looking into it. No, they're not. Okay, so so let's figure out if we can kind of bring some of that technology over to the UK, bring it, build up that base of knowledge, and and see you know where they are in the timeline to to get into that point because it, it's very agnostic for someone who's trying to break into any of these companies from a security perspective, whether you are you know in California in Atlanta, in New York City, or in London. It doesn't matter to them. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't you know, perceive yourself as being a, uh, a tribal country only the company. Because obviously a lot of the companies in the UK are listed. Listed companies are generally outside of the, just the general UK um, yeah. area. And what, when, when, when you're looking at, I suppose, uh, attack from the outside, again, you, you typically, I guess, ultimately trying to protect data, but also, I guess, IP, things like that. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Money, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really depends on the client what's, what's valuable to them. But so if you're a financial services company, if you're a trust, let's say like you, like you might find quite often on the Isle of Man, if you're a, a fiduciary, money is important. Money flows through your company to do things for, for, whatever, for whatever companies you manage or whoever you, or whoever you direct in, in that sense. So there's an opportunity there for some of that money to not end up where it should be if you don't have a security perspective or infrastructure built up very well. That's very that's something very simple and easy for us to understand. Someone sent the most basic example is someone sends you an email, it's an invoice, that invoice has bank details that are different than the bank details that you bank, you pay that invoice, that money's gone. That's a very simple little bit of phishing or a little bit of uh, security attack that people do all the time. I, I get emails sometimes that have that information on it that gets kind of cut off by our security procedures. But quite often in trust and in fiduciaries, you get these type of emails and you need to trace that back to the source about where that email came from and figure out, is this a, is this a security problem or not? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a very basic example. Larger companies, manufacturing, large service companies have lots and lots of IP that sit inside them. 
processes and procedures that they utilize for their clients as, that are worth, you know, untold amount of money. They don't want that getting out there because the competition could take it and utilize it for themselves. Or it's out, so there's some knowledge in there that shouldn't be shared with the public. Or there is customer data in there, like you said before, millions and millions of, of lines of customer data that, that can be sold out to any person that's acting out in the black market, in the dark web, in the gray web, and when that once that happens, not only do you put your clients at risk, but you put yourself in a, a very uh, precarious financial position because you've got regulators that look at that and look and look to penalize you for not having security around your company and around the client's data. Certainly, in the offshore arena where there's been there's been hacks and, and data stolen, yeah, yeah, absolutely, they're followed by by what yeah like say risk to their business risk to their clients and then yeah risk from from the regulator which is financial as well yeah i i i, I, try, I used to travel a lot before this quarantine happened i used to travel every week or every two weeks so I, you know i'm a member of marriott hotels i've got da i've got delta i've got all the major carriers on my email list well unfortunately about once a month i get an email from a major carrier a major hotel that says oh sorry um your data seems to have been stolen we're not really sure what we're going to do about it. So just so you know, we want to let you know that your data has been sold. We don't know where it is. It's gone. Uh, you might want to change your credit card numbers. You might want to change your address. You might want to update that. So we'll just let you know what happens in the future. That's, well, that's, not, that's not the response that you're supposed to yeah. be putting out there to the public. That's not helpful for anybody. That just gives a sense of confusion and a sense of, great, so do I need to change my credit card numbers? Do I need to get new credit cards? you really just don't know what they're trying to tell you because they don't actually know what's been stolen. And those are large companies. BA and Marriott, it happened to. Relatively big companies in the world. They have security teams embedded inside of their organization. They pay people lots of money to know this information, and they just don't know. And that's, that's really a, a problem, unfortunately, that we're trying to solve. So, 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 two, so two questions out of that. Uh, the first one that springs to, or I remember first, is that I assume you work, you work with... At, you know, medium, small, whatever you've got, you, you kind of flex to what the client, you know, the client size and the client needs. And then I suppose the follow-up part was you mentioned there about, you know, I look at, look at any firm, they tend to have an IT infrastructure, whether it's in-house or, or they outsource it. And do you, do you sometimes find that they feel maybe you're coming to step on their toes if you kind of coming in with a, just, just looking at the security in place? Because I, I guess you speak to any third party provider who's providing IT services, they'll say you're fine. I'm sure, yeah. sure that's not always the case. So uh, yeah. you find that a, 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 a difficult subject at times? Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, yes. So we, well, while we do service list the companies and, and FTSE and, and, and things of that size, we have focused on the SME market for the sole purpose that the information is not out there. And we didn't leave corporate jobs to go work for corporate overlords. That's not, that's that, from our perspective, that's not what we wanted to do. Now, not saying every large company is a corporate overlord, but there's a, there's a psychology to what we've decided to do here to start our own business. And it was, hey, we want to help out the, the clients that we know in the, in the, the large and, and corporate side of the world. When I say corporate, it's a U.S. term for large businesses. We want to help them out. Uh, we, we, we have colleagues, friends, whatever, inside those businesses that we want to help out. But our business model is not around pitching to major corporations for streams of work is about helping out SMEs because the, again, the information is not really well filtered down from, from the top, from the large corporations down into the SME market. Unfortunately, a lot of the products and platforms and solutions are pricing out SMEs. Mm -hmm. They can't afford to invest 
10,000 pounds a month into their security because they have to pay their staff. And that makes, and that's, and that perfectly makes sense to, to anybody who doesn't work for a huge corporation who deals with huge budgets, who doesn't see 10,000 as, you know, instead of, you know, your staff's wages, sees it just as a, a the, the travel budget for, for John for the next, for the next couple of weeks. You know, mm-hmm. so there's a complete difference in how people look at these amounts of money and how the support is looked at. So we try to, we're able to, to wholly focus on the SME market because again, we did this, uh, leaving our corporate jobs set up in this business to educate and to help and support businesses just like us who, who need that help. And, mm-hmm. and we didn't do it to make huge profits in, in, in the corporate life. Um, so that's, that answers the first question. Second question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, th- that is a very good question. We, we, we do have sometimes to deal with uh, outsourced IT who like to present themselves as security experts. And, and unfortunately, that's just that's just not the, the the same discipline or the same case. So, you know, as a business owner myself, I can understand I've got an IT solution that, that I had outsourced IT to handle the IT solution, and probably IT and information security sounds similar. So maybe IT handles information security from a, from a purely basic level. I'm sure that my IT guys have they got a firewall and they've got some virus stuff in there to keep things from getting into my network. Great, I'm happy with that. It's it's sorted out. Well, it depends on what your business does and your business model and how you how you communicate and a whole number of other factors whether or not you're sorted out or not. So, when we bring in solutions, when we audit companies, when we look at their outsourced IT providers, there certainly is some um, element of checking homework and whether or not that IT provider wants their homework checked. Yeah. And wants to receive a grade for their homework uh, <laughs> predominantly, so yeah. they don't always want to receive a grade, much less have their homework checked by security professionals. And very often, we've seen them present themselves as security professionals and talk about very basic solutions that have been out in the market for you know as long as we've had iPhones, and that's fine, and, and that might be good enough for for basic business processes. But there's a whole other level of security solutions and platforms that can be brought in if a business needs it, not, not every business needs it, that unfortunately is outside of their expertise. And, and it, it's, it's outside the expertise in the way that I don't know how to be a professional marketing executive because I didn't study marketing after my second year of university. So I'm not going to present myself as a marketing executive. Although I know business, I have, I have degrees in business and in finance, doesn't necessarily mean that I should go out there and say, hey, hire me for marketing executive. I'm going to they take your product to the moon and back. You know, that's not something that I should say. And yeah. so in a similar vein, not every person who has an IT background should say they're an information security professional. It's, it's just a completely different discipline. And the fact that you have to go to school to learn these things or have experience in these things over a certain amount of time to be able to professionally consult in that way and present yourself in that way. Not, and not every outsourced IT company has these issues, but certainly we've run into it in the past. And there's a whole element of education around that that we that we try and help our clients with as gently as possible because it, we understand that there is a there's a relationship there and that relationship doesn't doesn't need to be a relationship of we know better than you know that's not the relationship we're trying to establish just a relationship that says there's different there's different disciplines in this world different disciplines in information whether it's technology or security we just want to make sure that we stay, stay inside the you know the lanes that we have. Yeah. Across whatever we need to, but also provide the best advice we can to our clients and, and do it at a basis that 
is able for them to to translate and understand what we're trying to tell them. You can ultimately complement the services that are already there, aren't you? Exactly. We don't come into a business and we're like, hey, we're going to give you computers, we're going to give you an information yeah, yeah. solution, we're going to we're going to do all this outsourced IT for you. That's not that's not something we want to do. That's not that's not what our our expertise is in, uh, or the disciplines that we went to, that we that we studied in school or have expertise in from from life. So. It is a complementary service in our in our from our perspective, and it's as complementary as it can be. And it it doesn't cross over into their realm of outsourced IT provision unless it is kind of changing some things on networks that allow us to bring in the solution, which is very superficial uh, change, anyways. So, so to go back to we talked earlier about obviously the leadership. If it's pretty, maybe it's a difficult question to answer. But if 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 our listeners, you had one piece of or tip or advice in regard to just leadership in general, I appreciate we're stepping back a little bit here mm. and through that military experience and seeing that, what would that tip be? I always thought that listening was the best part about being a leader. And I think that's something that's always trampled on all the time in, in leadership training, management training. They, they want you to be assertive. They want you to get out there and, and lead from the front, especially a lot of the military disciplines. And, and initially, in the early years of learning military leadership from, from the schooling perspective, that's what they're, they're trying to tell you is sort of leading from the front, setting an example, all those great terms that we hear all the time, obviously, in popular uh, cinema, things like that. Now, later on, they talk about, okay, you've, you've done that. Now let's talk about how you can actually help the people that are working for you help themselves. And, and one of those ways is to, to be a great listener. And being a great listener is, Really just trying to understand the perspectives and its guys with, with what your your staff or the people who serve under you are, are trying to, to achieve, what their motivations are, uh, what, what, what makes them tick, what can, what can you do to support them to, to make everyone in the unit or in the team or in the company's life better. And that's really what, what, what I try to do and what, what I learned was the best method for me. It wasn't standing up on my desk and saying, right, we're going to do this. Follow me. I'm going to do it first. You're going to do it after me. Yeah. I'm setting the example. You know, that's, that might work for some, for some people, obviously. And certainly there's probably a time and a place to do that. If the building's on fire, that's what I'm going to do. We're going out that exit. You know, I'm making that decision. Yeah. But if it, you know, if it's normal business yeah. operations or you're, you're in a project team together or you're, you're developing a program or you're building a product or any of these things that you would do in business, I mean, it's really important to get all the ideas out there and, and, and get the brainstorming done and figure out certainly people are going to have better ideas than me. And we hire people to be smarter than us. That's the whole point of, of, of having businesses is not to hire people that you don't think can contribute, but just do some stuff. You know, yeah. we'll do this, you do that. It's hire people that can contribute, that can, that can really, really influence the, the product design process or the operational process or the delivery process for consultants and let them take off with something once you give them the basis from which they can start to be creative. And, you know, as they go along, as they go along the route, if they need to, you've got course correction, you've got steering, you've got things that you can influence along the way and, and provide that kind of management perspective. But you, you allow people to be empowered. You allow them to have their own thing, do their own thing. And they're going to, they're going to achieve great things in my opinion. Yeah, no, you mentioned empowerment there. That was kind of the word going through my head was, yes, that, that empowerment. So a little bit more maybe about yourself. I mean, out, outside of work, what, 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 how do you relax? <laughs> so 
I played sports most of my life. I played three sports all the way up through high school and then played baseball at university. So I was a big team sports guy, if you want to call it that, from a very general perspective. I like playing team sports. I like playing pickup basketball, playing softball, because, you know, when you get older in the U.S., you can't play baseball anymore. They have to play softball, which is slow pitch, instead of fast pitch. That's just the whole thing about getting old, which I'm not there yet, but I can see myself getting to that to that point where it's just, you know, drinking a beer and, and playing softball, unfortunately, it's my team sports outing in the future. But that's that's what I generally do. Um, we don't have that as much. I'm, I'm here in France. We don't have that as much over here. We've got football, obviously, soccer yeah. for the U.S. people. So I do play that once in a while. The team sport, but mostly it's more limited to individual sports. So now I've, I do a lot of skiing and uh, water sports uh, as well. When I'm back in the states, um, my family lives on a lake and outside of Atlanta, so we skiing and wakeboarding and things like that nice. and um and then just individual things like golf i was playing golf yesterday it was raining terribly here but it was the first day that we could actually get out of quarantine yeah. so even though it was raining and it was kind of like being in scotland yesterday even though i'm in the, in the southwest france uh still out there for 18 and you know so the car is soaked it's just you know it's, it's fine though it, it's, it's worth being out there to get outside of uh get outside of general really yeah yeah no absolutely and, and for our listeners, in, in regard to, uh, I suppose, reading and books, are you any recommendations, whether, whether that be just, you know, books you read for relaxation or books you read for your kind of own knowledge and self-development? Yeah, I mean, I like history. So I, I do read a lot of history books. And uh, certainly an element of, of kind of where I live and where I've traveled and, and what I've done has made me even more interested in, in history of Europe as opposed to the history of the U.S., which I've learned a lot in at school and, and university and things like that. So I, I do read a lot of history books. I read, um, I read The Guns of August recently, which is a book about World War I, uh, the preceding lead up to World War I and the first, uh, first few months of, the, of action in August of that time. Mm. And it paints a you know, pretty great picture around the political motivations of people leading up into that time and the, the different monarchies that were controlling around that time at least for history people, it's quite interesting, yeah, uh, yeah. interesting for me. And then I, I read some stuff on, on current politics. Um, I read about uh, geography. Um, and from a motivational perspective, I'm, I do like biographies. I mean, I've, I've read, um, I read Obama's biography last year. I've, I've had halfway through Clinton's biography. It's you know, 800 pages. So uh, just time, trying to find the time to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to, read, to read that in my life is, is interesting. But it, for me, a big part about those the biographies that I read are from the, from the, from the motivation of books that I read is the, the beginning, learning how the origins of it happened. That, that's interesting to me to figure out how that they got to that point to where they were. So if it's a biography on a president, let's say that we're talking about leadership and, and management and, and those great things, that's fine. I understand the style. And I'm happy to read that at some point. Really, the first quarter of the book is around how they got the motivations to become that sort of person. Yeah. And so that's, that's probably the most interesting part of the books for me. And Unfortunately, that leads, that leads me to have six or seven books that I was open and none of them having been complete. So I'm probably going to get better at that. But I think, you know, we're going to be in quarantine for another three or four weeks. Yeah. So I've got time to yeah, finish some of these books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, if people want to reach out to you, Nick, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or email me directly, um, which I can, I can post my email at some point. Um, or you can reach us on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, we've got a number of different platforms that you can, that you can reach us on that if you have questions, uh, questions about security, questions about business, questions about, you know, one of the things we've been talking about in the last three or four weeks is agile working. Agile working is, is a nice way of saying working remotely from home and we're helping and we're consulting with businesses on how to effectively 
communicate and operate and, and look at their financial situation or look at the security or any of those things from, from where they are currently all working from, uh, from the comforts of their own home um, until we, you know, if we're all getting back together at some point in our offices, uh, that bridge to that point. But I think, you know, there's a, there's a strong argument to say that what's happened now in the last two months, uh, three months in some parts of the world, is going to change the, the workers' psychology for the future. And they're going to they're gonna stand up and they're going to say, well, I do like the office. I do like the, the camaraderie that I feel when I'm in the office. I do like the, the, the getting up every day and going to work, that, that psychological idea of having a routine. I mean, that's yeah. great for, for, for people. But also, I think people have started to understand, if they didn't before, that there is an opportunity for them to be a bit more flexible in the working arrangement a bit more flexible in the way that they interact with their, their office, with their job. And I think that's going to be important to people going forward. Certainly, you know, has been for a lot of people that we've talked to and, and we've held webinars around this and answered questions around this. And, you know, it's usually two ways. Management are asking us, how do we best communicate with staff? How do we keep staff happy? How do we empower our staff? How do we work in a collaborative fashion online using whatever platform that we use, whether it's Microsoft platform or Zoom platform or whatever they utilize? Um, and then from the staff who aren't who are managers, they're asking us, you know, how do I best communicate with my boss, with my team? How do I manage my time effectively? How do I manage my workload effectively? How do I measure output? How can I have my boss measure my outputs? Because yeah, it used to be yeah. measurement of outputs is like, I saw you at 9 a.m. and I saw you at 5 p.m. and you yeah. were here between that time. So your output was this many hours of work per day. Not saying all businesses are best like that, but certainly there's a, again, there's an idea around that that's kind of ever present in the back of the mind that, okay, well, you know, Jack was here all day, so he's put in a full day of work, so, you know, there's no issues. That's going to change, so let, let's get a little bit uh, smart in how we can measure people's outputs. You know, we can introduce the concept of KPIs around workers' outputs, and, and whether it's time basis, output basis, or, or some hybrid of the two, there's ways to do that, which people probably didn't have time to think about in the past, which is fine, because everyone's busy, and that's a, a term that's thrown around a lot, obviously, but it, it is true, especially people who are running businesses, who are doing thousand different things we're just hoping that the people who work for them or that they're managing are doing what they're supposed to do and then they get together at certain points in the in the calendar and they catch up and make sure everyone achieved what they're supposed to achieve well there's no reason to not make that an ongoing basis or a measurement basis and that so yeah, we've had that like, discussion like you say the whole dynamics has changed in those whole factors of people working remotely it was just six eight weeks ago businesses i'm sure many many businesses never even thought about it and now it's hap happened and will probably continue to happen that, that those those things you mentioned there are, are built into that and in regards to people reaching out we'll obviously stick some notes in our, our footer as well so we'll we'll add some links so if you want to re reach out to nick please you know obviously he says that please do so so appreciate you coming on i think we could now for a lot longer and i suspect we chatted beforehand we will as, as some other occasion as well but i appreciate your time thanks for coming on today all right thanks very much thanks everyone Thanks for listening, everyone.